The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. on Wall Street, and here is your top five at five. Stocks roller coaster week rolls on, rising concern over oil costs once again rattling investors, but futures pointing to a potential bounce back today. President Biden and NATO leaders gathering for a high-stakes meeting on Russia. This as Ukraine starts to regain some ground in Putin's brutal land war. We are live in Brussels with more. Russian energy topping those talks and navigating the tough balance of sanctions and surging costs. And now new pipeline problems could send oil even higher. Here in America, airlines are saying ditch the masks. But will the White House listen? And our conversation with one of America's great entrepreneurs, billionaire investor Thomas Tull. His take on the macro environment, the markets, and a stock high on his radar. It is Thursday, March 24th, and you are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and as always, welcome from wherever in the world that you may be watching. I am Brian Sullivan. Thank you very much for joining us on this very busy Thursday. And here's how your money and markets are looking right now at this 5 a.m. hour. And stock futures, they are in the green. They're higher. In fact, NASDAQ futures gaining the most. They are up about three-quarters of 1%. Dow futures are higher as well. Stocks did pull back on Wednesday in what has really been a choppy trading week so far. Yesterday, all three major indexes falling by more than 1%. Rising oil prices, a key factor, maybe the key factor in how stocks trade lately. And oil staying high right now. There's a new problem with a key pipeline around the Caspian Sea that is highlighting worries about already tight global surprise. But is that problem really just another Putin ploy? We'll get more on that in minutes. Either way, you can see WTI crude is at 115 and change right now. Still stock futures up, so it could be a, a rare day where stocks and oil both move higher. Long way to go. We'll see. And in bonds, the 10-year yield actually ticking down a notch. Back to 2.34%, although certainly well higher than it was even a couple of months ago. All right, let's go now around the world because something is happening that has not happened in a month. Some Russian stocks are going to reopen for trading in Moscow, albeit with a major caveat. Rosanna Lockwood is in our London newsroom with that and your European trade. Rosanna, good morning. Good morning, Brian. And yeah, that potential Putin ploy playing out in the Caspian Sea, as you mentioned there, having that effect on energy prices. We're seeing a modest recovery in European stocks this morning. I think emphasis on modest. FTSE 100 around three-tenths higher. The CAC 40 in Paris around a half. Same for the DAX in Germany. Some real runaway factory gate prices happening in Germany and Italy. So one to keep an eye on. And President uh, Biden has just arrived in Brussels at the NATO headquarters. I know you're going to have some analysis on that in the show. But let's talk about the Russian stock market reopening now. This is the MOEC. 
index. It's the ruble-denominated uh, composite benchmark in Russia. The RTS is the dollar-denominated. We've been at war for a month here in Europe. Now, the MOEX actually closed down where shares plunged 33% in Russia on the 24th of February. It's been closed since the 25th of February. On reopening this morning, it's reopening from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. at local time. Only 33 of the 50 stocks in the index are allowed to be traded. This was all announced by Russia's central bank on Wednesday. Immediately on opening, it rose about 10%. It's now 7% higher. But it is a weird one, this. We can't treat it like a normal stock market. This is now a, a, a command economy uh, stock market. You've got to remember that no one can uh, short sell. Foreigners can't sell shares. Everything's denominated in rubles, which you can't sell. Retail traders do trade on this uh, index in Russia. However, the government is going to be intervening uh, heavily. The National Wealth Fund in Russia promising to buy around a trillion rubles worth of shares in these companies by the end of the year, Brian. Rosanna Lockwood, going to be really interesting to see what happens with Russia up now, but we'll find out when you can't short sell. Oh, we know how that tends to turn out. Rosanna, thank you. All right, now to Brussels, Belgium, where President Biden and fellow NATO leaders are gathered at the group's headquarters for a key meeting on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The president facing mounting pressure at home and abroad for the U.S. to do more to help the nation, while also trying to avoid further escalation or direct land war with Moscow. Kayla Tausche joining us now from Brussels with more. Kayla, good morning. Good morning, Brian. President Biden just arriving at NATO headquarters moments ago, flanked by his national security advisor, his secretary of defense and the secretary of state for an emergency summit of NATO leaders to discuss that war in Ukraine that has been going on for a month now and has now reached NATO's doorstep. It is the biggest test for the alliance, perhaps since its inception several decades ago. President Zelensky of Ukraine will be addressing the summit virtually this morning. As Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg earlier today said Putin has made a big mistake and that there is a risk if chemical weapons are used that the agents would spread into NATO territory, thus forcing NATO to respond. Today, President Biden is expected to announce a new wave of sanctions on Russia, which National Security Advisor Sullivan says will include more oligarchs and top Russian officials. And on Friday, the U.S. and EU are expected to make an announcement to surge natural gas supplies to Europe. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen said yesterday the bloc is aiming at having a commitment for two additional winters. Certainly that would be a lot of natural gas needed to replace the supply coming out of Russia. Uh, von der Leyen is expected to meet with Biden tomorrow morning. But coming up next, Brian, we are expecting in just a few minutes time to see all of those 30 NATO leaders gathered for what's called a family photo. It's usually a formality, but this time around it will be a powerful and symbolic show of force as the West unites to levy more punishment on Vladimir Putin. Brian. All right, Kayla, the photo op is nice to your point, but what is the rest of the timeline here? What's the real expectation of anything concrete coming out of this meeting that could do anything to get Putin out of Ukraine? 
Well, I think that there's going to be coordination on several fronts. First, on the financial front, just how much military and humanitarian aid can this group put together for Ukraine directly? Then, how much military spending overall will these defense ministries of these various countries be able to contribute for NATO force posture going forward? Secretary General Stoltenberg this morning uh, talked up the commitment by Germany to pay 2% of its GDP into NATO, which of course uh, would as required by NATO, but it hadn't been met in the past. And so Stoltenberg noting that there will be a large influx of money coming from these governments to fund NATO and fund its commitments going forward. And then finally, Brian, Brian coordination by NATO on exactly how to respond in certain scenarios, how to respond if China ends up providing material support to Russia, how to respond if, as I, I mentioned before, a chemical attack ends up yeah. spreading into NATO territory as well. Uh, they're going to need to figure out exactly uh, what they would do and make sure they are all on the same page because some of the public commentary in the last 24 hours has not been. And I see, Kayla, in our split screen here that the NATO leaders are gathering for that family photo. We might take that in a moment. I want to come back to you, though, because I want to make clear to our audience from what I understand it, and please correct me if this is incorrect, Kayla, which is that right now there are some NATO nations that are providing aid to Ukraine, but NATO as an organization has done very little. Is that an accurate statement? I think that is an accurate statement because ultimately the funding comes from these specific countries. I would note that there have been some other blocs, notably the European Union, who have done first ever uh, historic contributions of defense and military aid to Ukraine. So uh, certainly uh, this has been a precedent setting event that has happened. So you can't rule anything out. But as of right now, you are correct, Brian, that it has mostly been uh, the funding from the governments themselves. And we're watching on our screen. We can see UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson and others gathering for that photo. Kayla Tausche live in Brussels, Belgium. We appreciate it, Kayla. We'll see you all day here on CBC. Thank you. All right, let's get back now to the markets and your money, folks. And the reaction to all of this and another rough showing by stocks yesterday. But don't blame the sell-off on bonds or the Fed because apparently it is all about oil. And we say that because look at this. This is a one-year chart. We can make it three or five years. It wouldn't matter. Of the S&P 500 against WTI traded crude. And you can see that the orange line is crude. The white line is the stock market. And pretty much every time crude oil goes up, stocks tend to go down. And when crude falls, stocks tend to go up. Oil's 5% gain yesterday was no difference. And with some on the street, including trading giant Traffic Gurus, co-CEO saying that oil could hit $150 or even $200 a barrel this summer. Could it mean that equity volatility is here to stay? Joining us now is Gina Sanchez, Chantico Global CEO and a CNBC contributor. Gina, uh, we talk a lot about the Fed. The Fed matters, but it does appear that oil right now kind of is in the stock market driver's seat. Would you agree with that? And by the way, you're in L.A. How expensive is the price of gas? Well, the local gas station at uh, the corner where uh, I, I tend to fuel up is at $6.30, so a gallon. So, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a biter. Yeah. Yeah, and so, do you think that oil Brian, is going to continue to be the main driver for the stock market? 
Absolutely. If, if you look at how oil and, and quite frankly, how gasoline prices tend to, um, tend to affect consumption, it's an immediate tax on consumption. And that's the big problem right now is that we have been in a recovery post pandemic. It has been a somewhat fragile recovery and that recovery can be shaken by anything. Um, and so a massive tax on consumption like oil um, is is just not what the economy needs right now, and you're starting to feel it directly. Yeah, and we it, six. I'm still kind of reeling from the six dollars and thirty cents, although that is California and Los Angeles, Gina. Thankfully, that is not a a national thing yet. But you know, some of these folks like Trafigura, by the way, one of the biggest trading houses in the world. Very smart people, not always right. But they're making comments about 150 or $200 barrels. That could mean $6 national gasoline. Consumer has held up so far. Corporate earnings have looked okay. Is the worry going to be if oil stays higher for longer? How much more do you think corporate earnings, which should control the stock market, Gina, should anyway, uh, can withstand these types of higher input costs? Well, you know, I think the big challenge right now, Brian, is that if you look at um, normally oil prices would never be allowed by OPEC to get to 150 or $200 a barrel. Normally you would see a flood uh, of, of production by the OPEC nations in order to, to manage that price. But you have a problem that we have enormous supply constraints that have been there since, um, since the pandemic. Even, you know, and, and so going into this recovery, we were already faced uh, with a constrained uh, oil supply. And so OPEC nations are not in a position to simply open up the, uh, the production spigot, flood the market with oil, um, and get oil prices down. And so that notion that oil prices could hit $150 is actually a potential possibility. And the longer oil prices stay over 100 the longer, the, the, the bigger the hit to GDP. You could see a significant hit to GDP just uh, with a month at staying at these prices because we normally don't, oil spikes are normally just that, spikes. But right now we're dealing with something that could linger. And the longer it lingers, the more it will hit GDP. Okay, just a side note. We've got a split screen on you, Jeannie. You probably can't see it, but the NATO leaders, including President Biden, Boris Johnson, Emmanuel Macron, Olaf Scholz, and others, just wrapping up their, their so-called family photo in NATO as they are going into NATO headquarters in Brussels, Belgium, to talk about Putin, to talk about his war in Ukraine and possible solutions. We don't know what's going to happen from this meeting uh, but talk to us about the macro impact. I know you're kind of a global macro uh, investor. You travel to London. You've got a worldview, Gina, which is, uh, let's say, thankfully, this war ends or comes to some kind of a halt tomorrow or soon. Is that an automatic bid for stocks? And conversely, if this thing slogs on for months, it escalates, Putin gets more desperate, does that ultimately hurt the stock market or is this kind of, sadly, its own event, which will not mean a whole lot, maybe outside of energy prices, to the U.S. equity markets? So strangely, Brian, you know, we looked at the, you know, the last 20 wars since 1948 that had any kind of global significance. And except for one significant war, which was the Yom Kippur War, October 1973, which was a very specific set of circumstances, 
Most wars, really, their price impact does not last longer than six months. And that's regardless of how long the actual underlying war um, occurs. And so, you know, one of the problems is that the market will eventually move past this news and it can become its own, um, it, it, its own event uh, without having price or, or market impact. However, oil prices and interest rates. Those two things do matter to the, to the uh, stock market. And so the higher we can expect uh, interest rates to go or the higher that oil yeah. prices linger and push up inflation, that's where the rubber meets the road for the stock market. And that's what investors need to be watching. And we're seeing kind of the double whammy, Gene, and not only uh, higher oil prices, 115 this morning, $6 gas where you are, but higher interest rates and borrowing costs as well, and things like home refinances collapsing, according to Diane, Dan Olick last week as well. So there's a lot going on with the consumer. Certainly, Gina Sanchez, uh, Chantico Global, thank you very much. All right, folks, as you can see, that is interior of the NATO headquarters in Brussels, Belgium. There you see U.S. President Biden greeting his compatriot, U.K. Prime Minister Boris Johnson, some other world leaders on the stage. They are gathering to discuss Vladimir Putin and Ukraine. This is what they call an extraordinary, really another word would be emergency meeting. You can see some U.S. advisors like Security Advisor Jake Sullivan there in the background as well. Some global leaders and some of their colleagues meeting live at NATO headquarters in Brussels, Belgium. You just heard Kayla Tausche reporting what may or may not occur with that meeting. So we'll get you more if any headlines do cross as the world leaders greet each other. Many of these folks, by the way, meeting in person for the first time in this size of a group in no doubt two years time. All right. Certainly there is a lot that could come out of that NATO meeting as well. Let's talk more about that and oil. Joining us now to tie it all together is Kevin Book of Clearview Energy Partners. Kevin, it's great to have you on with your worldview uh, this morning. Do you think from a macro perspective, that anything tangible is going to come out of that NATO meeting today. Well, Brian, good morning. The uh, NATO meeting is largely focused, it seems like, on security parameters with an economic undercurrent. It's the G7 meeting and the European Council meeting later today, where topics of sanctions that could affect energy directly uh, sound like they are still on the table for discussion, if not immediate action. How does Europe walk that fine line? They want to punish Vladimir Putin. They want to do that economically. But at the same time, they came in to this war on the edge or in full-blown energy crisis with the price of natural gas and utility costs rising already even pre-invasion. How does, how does Europe thread this needle by wanting to do what they want to do and punish Putin, uh, but not destroying their own consumer and economies in the meantime? Yeah, not coincidentally, because inventories were lean in Gazprom storage in Europe, Brian. Uh, they did come into this, this war at high prices, and their thinking changed rather dramatically, if you recall. You and I spent time in the past discussing the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. No one talks about it anymore, because facts on the ground changed thinking in Europe. The same thing is possible here today. Yesterday, Chancellor Olaf Scholz said, no way, no how are we going to cut off European energy. But an escalation on the ground in Ukraine, a chemical weapons attack, weapons of mass destruction, some of those military issues can filter into energy and change thinking very quickly. 
But you believe that it would take some some further escalation in this war by Putin for that, for that direct sanction on Russian oil and gas by Europe to occur. Well, there are two ways to get to that result. And I think if I may speak fr- freely here, uh, there the are t- some recent data points that suggest the supply may not be as stable as previously believed. Russia has long prided itself and touted itself as a reliable supplier. Uh, whatever Europe may want to do, whatever graceful phase down they may envision for transitioning away from Russian energy, We already see one uh, pipeline's Black Sea terminal in Russian control suspended because of storm damage. Uh, Whether or not a storm damaged it, it is Russia that determines when it comes back. And yesterday, a call for buying gas in rubles. So I think it may not be as stable as believed. Yeah, and you're referencing what they call the Trans-Caspian Pipeline. Uh, We've talked about this in the past, about this, this, the importance of this pipeline, it's about, I think it's just over 1% of global supply. Not exactly sure of the, the status of that pipeline directly, some concern. If that pipeline, Kevin, though, were to go offline for, quote, storm damage or some other issue, is that $150 oil? Uh, it nudges us in that direction. You know, exact price precision is impossible right now with so many things in flux at once. Demand destruction comes to the rescue, if you want to call it that. Nobody who's buying gasoline at $6 would uh, after a price goes up above 150 or thereabouts for a while. But could it get us there? It's a stepping stone to that, yes. We've talked about this war by Putin being one of energy and economics. And he can, he can hide this under the cloak of, well, we're trying to repatriate uh, some Russians or denazify the nations. But if the Nord Stream 2 pipeline is never approved, and at this point it looks like it may not be, according to Germany, the the major pipelines that Putin needs to get his gas west come through Ukraine. In your mind, Kevin, is at least part of this offensive offensive uh, because he wants to control those pipelines through Ukraine, which he pays, or at least Gazprom pays, over a billion dollars a year in tolls to. Yeah, there's at least two issues tied up in that. And Brian, a very grim realization uh, we saw before the war was that Putin didn't seem to care about Nord Stream 2 anymore, wasn't responding to threats out of Washington. The implication might have been that he was going for a takeover of Ukraine and those trans-Ukraine gas routes and therefore no longer needed Nord Stream 2. As far as what it provides him, it's leverage over Ukraine and leverage over Europe, two things that he can use as geostrategic leverage, if not economic support for Russia. You know that you referenced storage earlier in the interview, Kevin, about how storage was low coming into the invasion. Nobody smart thinks that's any kind of an accident. He kind of wanted to put Europe on the knife's edge of energy. Do you believe that Putin goes one step further with continental Europe? He's obviously waging a war war with Ukraine, Does Putin go out with an economic war with continental Europe? I think he's already armed the energy weapon at least a couple of times. The Russians fired Iran's energy weapon by getting in the way of a deal that investors were betting on coming back to market with 1.3, 1.4 million barrels per day by year's end. Russia is now, it looks like, uh, in the, the decision point on Kazakh oil going out to the Black Sea terminal that we talked about. And yes, there's already gas flows in question. Again, the story Russia tells the world is that they are a reliable supplier. 
but we have to look at facts on the ground. Maybe they were reliable in a different context. Today, in a war zone, if you're a buyer of Russian gas, I think you have to risk into your put into your risk calculation some yep. new changes in that reliability. Well, we are seeing what we call Dutch TTF gas, which is spot gas in Holland trading at 130 or 120 euros per megawatt hour. Convert that to U.S. dollars. That's about $35 per MBTU, and we're paying $5 here. That's what Europe is facing. Kevin Book of Clearview Energy Partners. Really appreciate your clear view, Kevin. Uh, Thank you for joining us this morning. Good to see you. All right, when we come back, we've got a lot more in this morning's NATO summit in Brussels. Belgium will give you the latest headlines if and when they cross. Plus, billionaire investor Thomas Tull, he's joining us exclusively. He'll talk the economy, inflation, markets, and some investments that he likes right now. Oil is higher, but stock futures are higher as well. We're glad you're up with us on this Thursday morning, and we are back right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, welcome back. Well, in addition to that big NATO meeting in Belgium, there are other things happening this morning outside of that NATO summit. Let's get some of your key headlines here with Silvana Hanau at CNBC. Silvana, good morning. Hey, Brian, good morning. Well, South Korea reporting that North Korea has tested a banned intercontinental ballistic missile for the first time since 2017. Officials say the missile fell in waters south of Japan after flying for more than an hour. The launch is the latest in a series of what U.S. and South Korean officials have been, say have been missile tests. A group representing several major airlines is asking President Biden to overhaul the administration's COVID protocols when it comes to flying. Airlines for American sending a letter signed by the heads of Delta, Southwest, American Air and UPS, among others, calling for the end of the transportation mask mandate and pre-departure COVID testing requirements for international flights. The move comes on the heels of the TSA's decision to extend face mask requirements until mid-April. And LG Energy Solution announcing it plans to invest $1.4 billion to build a battery factory in Arizona by 2024. The company, which is a supplier for Tesla and Lucid, says it is making the move to meet demand from prominent startups and other North American customers. Brian, the U.S. factory will be LG's energy's first to make the type of battery used by the two EV makers, 
and construction on the facility is slated to begin this year. Uh, maybe some good news on American manufacturing yeah. and jobs. Exactly. Thank you. You got All it. Right. All right. On deck. Thank you. President Biden on the ground in Brussels. NATO leaders mapping out their next steps in combating Russia's Ukraine invasion. What, if anything, the group really has the power or the willpower to do? Futures and oil both higher this morning. And we're back right after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Oil up, stocks down. Maybe not today. Crude moving higher again, but stock futures, they're higher as well. Happening now, President Biden and NATO holding a high-stakes summit. Will it be just tough talk? Or will the group really take on Putin? And our conversation with billionaire investor Thomas Tull, his take on the macro environment, inflation, the markets. He's putting his money to work right now. It is Thursday, March 24th, and this is Worldwide Exchange. Right, welcome or welcome back, everybody, and good Thursday morning. I am Brian Sullivan. It's just about 5.30 here on this busy day. Let's jump right in, get a check on your money in the markets. As we are halfway through the 5 a.m. hour, stock futures, they are higher across the board right now. We're seeing NASDAQ up the most, up about uh, three-quarters of 1%, up triple digits, 107. Dow futures up 154 as well. It's been a choppy week. Stocks pulling back yesterday. All three major averages, in fact, declining by more than 1% in the markets on Wednesday. Rising oil prices, no doubt a key factor in that drop. You've got disruptions to Russian and Kazakh crude via a Caspian pipeline. That adding to already heightened worries about tight global supplies. WTI crude just under 115 per barrel in Europe. It's back above $120 per barrel. In the bond market, bond yields are ticking down a touch, but the 10-year at 2.34%. So it is well above where it was even one month ago. One of the sharpest and fastest spikes in bond yields for government debt anyway, ever. We'll talk more about that with John Nigerian in a few minutes. All right, back now to this morning's top story in that high-stakes meeting between President Biden and fellow NATO leaders in Brussels. That meeting by the group underway, with Ukraine's president set to join virtually. On the agenda, talks on major increases in NATO forces in Eastern Europe and additional arms and humanitarian assistance for Ukraine. President Biden and his EU counterparts also expected to discuss additional sanctions, including the possibility of direct action on, by Europe on Russian oil and gas, something European leaders have been trying to avoid because of their reliance on Russia as an energy source. Let's bring in Ian Lesser, Vice President and Executive Director of the German Marshall Fund of the U.S. Ian, good to have you on this morning. Do you believe that in this meeting, Europe will directly sanction either Russian oil, Russian gas, 
or both? I think this is very much what uh, Biden comes to Europe hoping to be able to accomplish. And of course, a lot of the groundwork for this has been laid already. I think really what they're going to be looking for, especially in the meeting with the EU leaders, is to simply continue this very uh, heavy cooperation on sanctions, which has been very effective so far. But it can go much further. I mean, oil and gas exports are one piece of this. That's maybe the most controversial part. But there are a lot of other things that they could do. Shipping, export restrictions, all sorts of things that... uh, allies have not yet done. Well, on that, obviously, we saw sanctions on on Russian oil to the U.S., although there's a number of tankers apparently still uh, basically on their way to the U.S. filled with Russian crude because that 45-day day window. Vladimir Putin also insisting he wants to be paid in Russian rubles. And with the depreciation of the ruble, Ian, isn't it possible that financially Vladimir Putin right now anyway is doing just fine? He may be doing just fine right now, but it's very clear that uh, as this goes on, the Russian economy is going to be coming under increasing pressure. I mean, this is already true. It's it's quite clear. And I would view this this uh, stunt really about being paid in euro uh, in rubles is really as an act of desperation, to be honest. Uh, you know, this is this is not serious and is unlikely to happen. Um, so, and even if, if countries were to start paying for some energy imports in rubles, uh, this is a very short-term thing. It's not going to last very long. I mean, he's facing increasing pressure. How far it goes with this visit, we'll have to see. We have seen some high-ranking leaders inside of Russia uh, resign. We have seen some be, be sidelined, Ian. Uh, most of the folks that we have talked to have suggested that the only way out of this, because it's It's not possible for Vladimir Putin, who clearly is a war criminal uh, and has been announced as such by the United States and others, to simply go back to ruling even if he ends the war tomorrow. Is the only way out of this war for somebody or a group of people, the military, oligarchs or somebody else to step up and say, we are now in charge of Russia. Vladimir Putin is no longer in charge. The military reports to us and please come home. In other words, is the only way out kind of a coup, an internal coup by Russia? And if so, do you see anybody that could pull that off right now? Well, I think one thing that Western allies clearly are hoping for is regime change in Moscow. I mean, that is in some ways the best way out of this, not only the crisis in Ukraine itself, the war at the moment, but also the longer term relationship with Russia. I mean, one has to consider how would it be possible to have a normal economic and political relationship with a leadership that's behaved in this extraordinarily ruthless way. So, you know, even when it comes to the sanctions debate about how do you end sanctions, uh, regime change is in a way the easiest way to get there. One way would indeed be a military coup or something else like that in Moscow uh, or a political coup. Um, In any case, this is for Putin clearly about regime survival. If he can't produce something that he can claim as a victory out of this, the durability of his regime is presumably limited. Well, what do you, Ian, what do you think his goal is? I mean, is the goal to conquer Ukraine? Uh, that We have not seen a nation conquer another nation of this size since 1939. I mean, what, what exactly is the goal here? Now it seems like he just wants to punish and destroy because he's angry it didn't go the way that he wanted to. And if that's the case... Even if he said tomorrow, okay, I've taught them a lesson, 
Russian troops come home. I'm still in power. How does the world react to that? Does the world just go about doing business with Russian oil, gas and red wheat like it had before? Brian, I'm not sure Putin really knows what the end goal is here. It's clearly evolved. Uh, The original uh, idea presumably was to have some sort of a lightning invasion, which would in fact just simply change the government in Ukraine into something more congenial, and he would declare victory. And there would be pieces like Crimea and Donbass that Russia would retain. Um, He may come back to at least the territorial part of that as something that he would accept as in some sense a victory. But at this point, having gotten into this very heavy invasion with very little success, the stakes are extremely high for him. And clearly one of his objectives here has to simply be to stay in power. Um, But if he does stay in power, he's going to be facing a very, very different West than he was facing even a few weeks ago. Uh, I do not see any way that NATO, the European Union, others are yeah. really going to change their posture unless he goes. Without direct involvement. And, and Ian, the point I made with Kayla Tausche earlier in the program, and I want to make this crystal clear to our audience, is that let's not confuse NATO nations with NATO itself. As of now, there have been NATO nations like the U.S. that have put economic sanctions and help with military aid. But NATO as an organization has done basically nothing. Yeah. NATO has actually done a great deal, but it's done it for NATO allies within the alliance to reinforce its own defense capacity for to defend countries that are inside NATO. In terms of helping Ukraine, you're absolutely right. Most of the assistance has gone through individual NATO member states. I think that could be one of the key deliverables from the president's visit to try to get NATO itself more engaged, probably within limits, but more engaged in the, uh, in the security of Ukraine yeah. per se. Well, let's hope something concrete around Ukraine does come out of this, Ian, and those energy sanctions could be uh, one heck of a headline for the global economy. Ian Lesser, we appreciate your views. Thank you this morning. Have a nice day. All right, coming up, our conversation with billionaire investor Thomas Tull, his take on the uncertainty gripping the markets, inflation, and how he is navigating it all. And as we head to break, a few other key headlines happening right now. Walmart is suing BJ's Wholesale Club, accusing it of stealing technology that powers its self-checkout systems. Walmart and its warehouse subsidiary, Sam's Club, claim that BJ's launched a self-checkout feature in its mobile app that is nearly identical to Sam's scan-and-go system. Hertz is adding Tesla's Model Y to its EV fleet. The addition of the SUV happening this week and coming months after Hertz announced its order to purchase 100,000 cars from Tesla. And California Governor Gavin Newsom wants to give tax money right back to the people. He's announcing a proposal to send $400 checks to every car owner in the state. That could also include, oddly, those who own gas-less EVs. Newsom also proposing free mass transit for those who do not own cars. California has one of the highest gas taxes in America. Stock futures and oil are higher. We're back right after this. All right, welcome back. Time now for some big money movers. Three key stock stories happening right now. Stock number one is KB Home. First quarter revenue beaten forecast, but profits did fall short. The company delivered fewer homes than expected. KB says supply chain issues, what else, and problems with hiring has delayed construction of new homes this year. Stock number two, Spotify. Google says it will allow Spotify to use its own payment system in the Android app 
It's part of a new pilot program. Users who download Spotify from the Google Play Store will have the choice to pay with either Spotify system or Google's Play billing. App developers have long complained about having to use Google and Apple's payment systems and the fees they collect for each transaction. And stock three, Nikola, the company confirming it started production on its electric commercial truck called the Tray at its factory in Arizona last week. Nikola has said it expects the delivery of those trucks to begin in the second quarter. Well, he may not be a household name, but he should be. His name is Thomas Tull. He's one of America's richest men. But he grew up the son of a single mother, poor, in upstate New York. After building and selling companies, including a chain of laundromats, he then created and sold legendary pictures to Sony and made billions. He's now made a number of successful early-stage venture bets on companies like Oculus and Pinterest. He's also part owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers, a producer on the Dune movies, and someone with his finger on the pulse of the American economy. We spoke with Tull and began by asking him how he's adjusting to this incredibly inflationary environment. There's a couple of things. At a certain point, you have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Uh, and I, I'm a huge believer in first principles thinking, sitting down and saying, what are we actually trying to accomplish here? What can go wrong? How can we best guard against that? Um, and, and then trying to look ahead at least a couple of chess moves on the board and figuring out which industries you want to make uh, investments in, uh, what you think is going to happen to the best of your ability, uh, and, and trying to make sure that your decisions are durable. Give us your take on FIGS, the stock right now, and I understand that you, you did just recently pick up more shares. Yeah, look, I, I think um, towards the end of last year, Wall Street tended to, to kind of clump a whole bunch of companies that went public, direct-to-consumer growth companies, and just said the whole thing's bad. Uh, the difference with FIGS is they're an incredibly profitable company. They have fantastic margins. Um, you know, they, they have uh, only a 3% market share <clears throat> of a, you know, roughly $12 billion uh, domestic TAM, much, much larger overseas. I think healthcare workers in general uh, is a incredibly resilient category and something that is uh, a bit inflation or a um, uh, economy proof. Um, and yes, I think uh, at, at the price that uh, that it went down to, I, I've I have been buying, will continue to buy, and I'm I'm just a big believer in the company and their fundamentals. You know, you talked about first principles. Do, do you have a? Do you go at things like with a best and a worst case scenario, and then try to find somewhere in the in in the in the middle eighty percent of that? I mean, there's so much uncertainty about how this may go in Ukraine. Uh, is there a scenario at which you would just say now's not the time to do anything or should we always be on the move um, because worst case scenario means we'll just adjust when we get there? Well, look, I, I think that you have to have uh, a blend of flexibility and pliability uh, coupled with, with principled thought process and investing. You have to know what you believe you have to make sure that that view is informed uh, and 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 stick to that. And at the same time, when things change or new factors come up, you have to be flexible enough to say, I'm either going to fail fast, I'm, I'm not going to be stubborn about this. Um, but I, I think many times out of chaos and uncertainty is where you have tremendous opportunities. 
And Mm -hmm. at least that's how I try to think about it. You had referenced figs as being, to your words, economy proof. You've got investments in things like uh, recycling with Roadrunner, uh, AcroSure insurance. Is that kind of one of the tall theories? Like you want to look at investments that, yeah, they're going to swing. They may be slightly cyclical, but overall, we're going to recycle. Unfortunately, we're going to have a lot of demand for health care, maybe as much or more than we were during the pandemic, uh, given some of the trends that we've had. Is that kind of one of your key tenets is look for things that are just not going to be uh, down 40 percent if the economy swings down? Well, you know, that's certainly part of it is, is we ask ourselves at Tulco, one, uh, can we use our labs group to drive technological change? And that, that certainly was the premise in our, our, mm-hmm. uh, our deal with Akashur. Um, Akashur has a tremendous global footprint. People need insurance. Um, and when you couple that with the artificial intelligence and the algorithmic uh, approach in terms of risk assessment, uh, public algorithmic trading, et cetera, et cetera, under the Akashur uh, brand, um, it, it's something that to me had great dependability, but also tremendous upside. So that's, you know, if, if you can catch opportunities like that, uh, you know, that, that's exciting to us. That was just part of our interview with Thomas Tull. You can catch the full thing, including what he has more to say about his investment in quantum technology company Sandbox that was just spun out of Google yesterday. That is on CNBC.com. By the way, he's buying figs. We'll see if he makes our exclusive insider buying segment tomorrow. Stay tuned to find out. All right on deck, John Najarian is here. He'll lay out some of the big options action around bond ETFs. Something is happening with these ETFs that has not happened, well, almost ever. We'll talk more about that. And if you haven't already, you can follow our podcast on all the major podcasting apps. We are back. Futures are up. Oil is flat, but at 115 Mm, We are back right after this. All right, welcome or welcome back and good morning. Let's get back down to the markets and your money. And maybe the story that should be talked about a little bit more, that is the dramatic pullback in bond ETFs. I know it sounds a little odd because who cares, but you should. Bond ETFs are suffering their worst drop since their peak last year as central banks around the world begin to tighten their monetary policies to try to keep inflation in check, but the selling Seems to be going far beyond that. Let's bring in more and bring in John Nigerian, Market Rebellion co-founder and, of course, a CNBC contributor. And, John, I'm going to throw up a one-year chart of the JNK, which is probably the leading high-yield bond ETF owned and traded by many of our viewers around the world. It it hasn't had the collapse that it had right when COVID hit, uh, but it's in that direction. I mean, the bond ETFs have lost a ton of money. I'm not going to say it's scary what's going on, but it's certainly fascinating. What, what in your mind is actually occurring here? Well, uh, obviously, people are thinking overall, um, as you know, uh, interest rates and bonds move in opposite directions. So when interest rates are going up, bonds are going down. doesn't matter if it's the JNK or the HYG, you know, the high yield, or uh, basically the USHY, any of those ETFs will be and should be um, moving down as the uh, interest rates move up. But what we thought was kind of interesting, Brian, is since last week, since the 14th, um, they've made a little bit of a turnaround. Now, some people might call it a hinge if you're looking at a chart and all of a sudden you see it 
pop back up like that, you might say, oh, that's a hinge um, and it hasn't proved anything yet, which is true. Um, but bonds are making a pretty significant move, both the 10-year bond and these ETFs we're talking about, pretty significant move. Um, but since last week, that hinge is still holding. People are still betting that maybe when we got to what uh, nearly 240 in the 10-year, maybe we got there a little too quickly and maybe we're going to see a little easing in the short term anyway, Brian. Well, it's been trillions of dollars, trillions with a T globally, not just here, but globally. That has come out of the bond market. Much of it, John, does not look like it has gone directly into the stock market yes, uh, yet, so I can only assume that people are, are starting to hoard cash. Oil prices at 115 Oil in the equity markets look certainly to be tied to the hip. Do you have a macro view on the equity market, John? There's just so much uncertainty out there right now. Sure. And uh, one thing that I'm not uncertain about, and I suspect you as well, uh, many of the viewers, is that if we mercifully got an end to the conflict war over in Ukraine, um, we won't see those sanctions come off anytime soon, Brian. And that's affecting, again, we've talked about this repeatedly, uh, but whether it's the nutrients you know, for fertilizers, whether it's foods themselves, because that's the breadbasket of Europe, really, Ukraine and Russia are, um, or whether it's energy, the amount of energy demand, and then that Black Sea terminal that just got hit by some bad weather and caused another million barrels a day to not come on the market, all of that isn't yep. just like throwing a light switch, turning back around. So I, I'm a little uh, concerned that those will be a drag for quite a while. Yeah, and they're saying that terminal, by the way, could be out for six weeks, although Kevin Book earlier said, John, that the weather thing may simply be a Putin ploy. It doesn't matter. Oil's at 115. Uh, on a macro level, market rebellion, look at it, options bets. Are people getting more bearish on the options side, or are they getting uh, bullish? Um, no, they're, they're actually wondering if this 200-day that we retook the other day, if this 200-day moving average holds, Brian, um, for more than 24 hours, people are not necessarily getting bulled up, but they're certainly lightening up on those put trades pretty significantly across the board. IWM, QQQ, Spider, all of those. That doesn't mean they're just jettisoning them, but it does mean that they're lightening up if we hold the 200-day. Yeah, John Najarian looking at the bond route, as our friend Lizanne Saunders has noted on Twitter a few minutes ago. The aggregate bond index that everybody looks at has not made any money. It's down now over two years. Bonds have just gotten obliterated. There's your tweet, by the way. Lizanne, thank you for that. Uh, John, thank you for getting up early, as always, my friend. Uh, invaluable advice. Have a great thank day, you, John. We'll see you again here soon on CNBC. All right, take care. Folks, all right, that does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Stock futures, they are up. Oil is flat, but it's still near 115. And the NATO meeting, ongoing right now in Brussels, Belgium. There is a lot to do all day long. We'll see you tomorrow with our exclusive insider buying segment. That's it for us. Squawk is next. Have a great day. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 